Well, good morning to you. All right. Um, well, since you're all standing, why don't we turn on our Bibles and then we'll make our acquaintances in a moment here. We'll read the scripture first while we're standing. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. This morning we're going to be discussing the job of restoration. Restoration not in a car, not in a house, but in a life. And so we're reading in Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to start in the last verse, verse 26. Then we're going to read the first few verses of chapter 6 here. So Galatians 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now starting in six chapter. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you that as a family today, we've been able to sit at your feet. Already, Lord, your Holy Spirit has met us here. You have already spoken to our hearts and minds. And Lord, we've already expressed our hearts to you, how we love you how we praise you, how we found you to be faithful over and over again. And yet today we're once again amazed at your grace towards us. Lord, thank you for your wonderful love for us, Lord. And thank you for the body here at Calvary Manteca. We realize, Lord, we're not in this alone, though. We pray for every brother and sister in this city and the cities around it. Lord, those people who are worshiping you, we come together and we say you are a great God. And we pray that you would speak to us today by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. It is uh, wonderful to be here with you. And I just want to, I think uh, Pastor Pat really shared my heart. I've known Sandy as well, going way back as well. And little Henry and Audrey, I saw them as babies. And so it's such a privilege to be part of this family and uh Pastor Pat's have been a wonderful support to me and an encouragement many, many times. And I just want to say also, I really um, appreciate this fellowship. I'm ministered, uh, I'm ministered actually to as well in the worship and the praise and all of that. So I pray that the Lord really encourages your hearts this morning. And I pray that the Lord speaks through his word today. When I bring up this word restoration um, one of the words that one of the things that come to mind for me is the idea of renovating an old house. And uh, I've never done this. I, I've owned an old house before, but I've never restored a house, never really renovated it, a really old place. And, you know, there's a dream for a lot of people of owning an old home. And you can gather from talking to different folks, the stories and the, the experiences that they've had. It's something very unique for every single family who goes through a restoration process. First, you know, there's that first sighting of the home. They see this, this place and it just looks like a dump, you know. 
and they see the place and it's all the excitement, the eye. What could we do with that place? You know, and and the first time they see it, something happens inside of their minds, inside of their hearts. And of course, the low price is somehow appealing to them, of course. And then, you know, they go through the next part of it where they make the purchase. They go through all of that process. They begin to make the move and then they move in and then they begin to discover what you would call the faults of the house, right? The house is not perfect. It has its issues. It has its problems there. And then there's all the accompanying sounds in the night. Have you noticed that? It's like even even our house. I, I you know it's not a very old house, and it makes the weirdest sounds like sometimes. And I'll say to my wife, "What is that?" She'll just say, "It's just the house," you know. It's like what what does that mean, you know? But even after you know, they go through the renovations and, or I should really say in the midst of the renovations, you realize that they take a step forward, right? And then you take a step back. You take a step forward and then you take a step back. And I don't care how beautiful the house becomes when your main line, when your main sewer line backs up, is there a problem or what? Everything changes then, doesn't it? I don't care how pretty it is at that point. Um, So you know what it's like. You go through all these different places and changes and that married couple, when they look at their house, they say these kinds of things. If only the walls could talk, right? Because the walls have seen a lot. And that what they're saying to you is that a lot of love has gone into that place. But what they really mean is a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into that place. And it was a lot of work. And restoration is a dirty work. It's a hard work. Can't always tell when the restoration's ever going to end, you know? I don't know, I've got some friends, and for some reason, those of you in the trades, you construction guys especially, and gals, I've noticed that your houses take the longest to renovate. Yeah, you know why? Because you keep going. You keep going. You never stop, and you're always doing something, and you're always going and moving. But the homeowners, when they look back on that era of restoration, they're really speaking of a whole season, a whole season of their life. And with all the careful considerations that came with it, the hours and hours of hard work, all of that was difficult. But here's what's important to remember about it is that was a labor of love. Restoration is a labor of love. And here we are, we've opened the book of Galatians this morning. If you know very much about Galatians, here's the problem. All of this hard work of love, the selfless part, the other-centered part about love, That's actually what was lacking in the Galatian church. Now, before you come to any conclusion in your mind that it's because these people were just sinful folks and maybe they just weren't the nicest bunch around, what's interesting is is that there was a reason why they lost their loving eyes towards one another, and it's a little bit of a surprise. It was because they were drifting to becoming more religious. They were drifting to becoming more legalistic. They were drifting to become more black and white and really beginning to peer at each other and kind of judging one another and trying to bring back that traditional Judaism that they were accustomed to. And they were beginning to make that kind of one of some of their major values. They were basically moving backwards into a gospel of works instead of a gospel of love and grace. Now, here's the thing. Restoration requires a different foundation. Restoration requires a foundation of love. And now what comes out of a foundation of love? We we you know, as Brother Dave said today, we couldn't rely on God's grace 
if we didn't have a foundation of love. Jesus came because of love. God sent his only son because of love. And then we have what comes as as a result. We have this wonderful grace being poured out into our lives. We have this wonderful mercy and kindness. So this morning, our focus as the body of Christ here at CC Manteca is to realize that all of us here in this room do have a responsibility. And we have a responsibility to be in relationship with other people around us in the body of Christ. And here's the thing is, when we see someone who is taken down by sin, guess what? We're called to be part of the restoration process in their lives. Now, this work of restoration is kind of bittersweet, right? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, my father was a pastor, and a lot of times, I don't know, every single time there was a car accident, my dad would pull over and he would make a beeline for the people in the car accident. And I remember times when the car was upside down and the wheels were still turning. And my dad was in there laying hands on people and praying for them inside of the car. He was coming in at a very, in a moment where it was not a sweet moment, but he brought the sweet presence of Christ into a bittersweet moment for those people. And when we're called to restoration, we're actually offered an opportunity to achieve something wonderful, to be part of something wonderful. But to be clear, the work of restoration really isn't so much about being the hero. It's not really about confrontation, but it's much more about cleanup. It's much more about healing and rebuilding of a brother or sister in the Lord. So this morning, we're going to explore this work of restoration. There's a few different parts to it. The first part we're going to discuss is the work of restoration, and that is basically what kind of work is it exactly? What do we do when we're helping someone? Uh, second, we're going to get into the kind of person who needs you know, restoration and understand at a more empathetic level so we can relate to others. And then also to see what gets in the way. What are the roadblocks to restoration? What is it we need to get to? get around to make sure that we're part of people's lives. And lastly, we're going to catch the spirit of restoration, the attitude of restoration. So I'm going to go right into the work of restoration. I think you probably already know this, but restoration is time-consuming. It can be painstaking, but I'll tell you this, it's never a quick task. You don't put it on your to-do list and go, done, I restored someone. It's not that simple. Now, the word restore in our passage in the original language was used a few different ways. First, it was a medical term that described setting a limb back in place. So I don't have to describe that much, but that is a very careful process if you're going to put someone's limb back in place to restore it to where it belongs. Another word for restoring is mending, and it's about repairing something. I'll take you back to the Gospels. Um, When Jesus... And his disciples, when he called his disciples, a few of them, James and John, they were sitting in their boat and they were with with their father Zebedee. And what what were they doing? Well, they were actually mending their nets, which is restoring the nets. Same word in the original language. And in that situation with these mangled nets in the boats, as Jesus came up, it's not that they're just untangling the nets. That's not what it means. It means that they're overhauling the nets. They are reconditioning them. They're cleaning the net. They're, they're replacing parts of it. They're retying it. They're refurbishing it. And 
every skilled fisherman cared for his nets. It was critical to any kind of success if you're a fisherman. Now, because of the importance of those repairs, the fisherman will persistently get the job done. He knows that he can't haul in a big load of fish if his nets are rotted out. So when a fisherman finds his nets needing repair, he just counts it as part of the job. He's going to do the repair needed. No fisherman thinks his nets are just worthless just because they're not perfect. So cleaning and repairing is just part of doing business. As we say in in business, it's a cost of doing business. To restore a net is simply to make it useful again. And once repaired, it has great potential. And so I think we can relate to it. It's the same with us. It's the same with us people. Um, There is so much worth in in a life, in a human life. I don't know if you noticed this, but unless you really know somebody, you tend not to really appreciate them. And when you know them, you go, man, there is so much to this person. I thought I knew this person. I do not know this person. But when you really get to know someone, you go, wow, this person's amazing. And I'm not just, you know, I know politics right now are really big. I'm not just, you know, saying nice things. But I think every person is actually pretty amazing if you get to know them. And you realize that every person has a value to God. And they're so different. And they're so incredibly different that you will never exhaust getting to know anyone. And you can realize that this person is important. And we look at how somebody, if they break their hammer at work, they will not go one second without getting a new hammer or repairing that one. But when it comes to someone who needs restoration, do we realize how important that person is? They need our time, they need our care, they need our love, and we should have that same desire to restore those individuals there. And so people are the same. Where there's a little damage, um, some repairs are needed. Where there's great damage, great bondage, more work is needed. The work should not surprise us, the work should not frustrate us. People make mistakes, and sometimes they even do it on purpose. Did you know that? Yeah, we make mistakes, and sometimes we actually say we make mistakes, and we actually did it on purpose. We actually need help, and we sin. It's interesting, sometimes people are surprised when they see sin in another life. Martin Luther, who is the father of the Reformation, he addressed this when he actually wrote on Galatians. He said, what is more human than for a human being to fall, to be deceived, and to sin? And we don't obviously have to be surprised by sin. We don't have to always be appalled by sin. Being appalled by sin doesn't make you godly. Being appalled by sin, that's, that's not what, how it works. But it does show you're a little out of touch. And we want to gain the heart of the Lord Jesus when we see sin so that we can minister and represent the Lord Jesus in that situation. Let's talk about the person who requires restoration. The person requiring the restoration. Verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass. This word overtaken is a little bit different because it means if someone is startled or surprised, taken by surprise is what that's speaking to. And then that word trespass here means a lapse or deviation from truth and uprightness. 
And in that that text, we see that the sinner is someone who has simply fallen into sin, not someone who is habitually in sin or maybe completely outside of Christian fellowship. But this is referring to that person who fell to the sin that easily besets us from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. In that situation, in that person's life, the moment got out of hand and they fell in their weakness or perhaps they were startled by temptation in that situation. I think we all know this happens all the time. It happens all around us. It happens to us. I want to give you a couple scenarios. Uh, Sometimes it's good to look at how this plays out in someone's life. Jane and John. Jane was unprepared for the environment she entered. It was a social gathering. She knew that she was putting herself in what could be a compromising situation. Her plan was just to slip away if needed, if the night went the wrong direction. But who would have thought that she would fall under the pressure of temptation? She was free from that for so many years. Now, John. John expectedly faced a conflict, and it felt like an attack. He was clearly provoked, but he didn't know he was capable of that kind of response. He'd never as much laid a finger on someone, let alone this. He fell hard under the pressure, and oh, how he regretted it. You know that regret? And now, the fallout. There's a fallout for sin, isn't there? Jane and John, these are our imaginary figures, but so much for reputations. Um, Now the cat is out of the bag after the sin has been exposed. And sometimes innocence is lost in a flurry of activity and emotion, and a dignified reputation is hard to get back again. And so this is the feel of the passage where Paul is showing us that these people have fallen into sin. Paul is actually speaking of a rhetorical scenario that shows that this person was overtaken in some kind of trespass, any kind, actually, any any trespass for that matter. Now, instead, when you see this, now you wouldn't, let me back up, you wouldn't say when you saw this particular scripture, you know, this dummy, why did they fall into sin? No, instead you would say, it could have been me, uh, that poor gal or that poor guy, I'm sure they're taking it hard. And this is the sentiment of the text. And this person is guilty, absolutely. The person sinned, yes. But the scripture's reminding us not to lose sight of the sin that startles us. Sin is sneaky. It is a snare. By the time its victim realizes this, the trap has already been snapped. Someone was vulnerable, and while struggling in weakness, they were deceived and they were trapped in a lie. Now, every sinner is guilty, but also every sinner gets scammed by sin. He's been taken for sure. He didn't win the good side of that bet there. So we, this helps us to gather the heart of how we should see the sin and the person who needs the restoration I think most of us don't have a problem relating that if we really empathize, we're going to have the right heart towards the person in need. But there's some things that can get in the way, and I want to talk about some of the roadblocks of restoration. We're called to this work of restoration, but the job doesn't always get done. 
Paul clues us in on the primary reason why restoration doesn't happen, and he starts by addressing it in verse 26. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 26, where he said, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And here Paul is telling the Galatians that they instead should be led by the Spirit. They should go on to bear one another's burdens. Now skip down to verses 3 and 4 in our text, and he's talking more about this conceited man or this conceited way that we can walk in. It says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Now all of us, have a propensity towards pride, what can we say? It just comes naturally. Uh, we don't even have to try for it. And this is confronted throughout the scriptures. I think of how Paul dealt with it so succinctly. In Romans chapter 12, Paul said to the Romans, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So Paul speaks of this word conceit, and I don't know about you, but I don't really use the word conceited very often. It just sounds so negative, you know. But when we dig into the meaning of it, we can see that there's, you know, little flavors of it in our own lives, and we have to ask the Holy Spirit to wash it out of our lives. I like how the King James Version uses the word conceit. it's, It's called desirous of vain glory. Uh, desiring a glory I don't deserve. Really, it's like pride waiting for an applause. And this kind of pride, it displays itself in at least two different ways. One is by provoking, as we saw in the passage, provoking, which is challenging others and kind of juking them out at times in conversation or in intent, uh, envying others, envying their gifts, their talents, their wealth. But if you notice, both of these things are are caught up in comparisons when we're comparing one brother or sister to ourselves or to another, and we begin to get caught up in that type of thing. I, I was talking to one Christian brother one time, and he was a pastor, and he said to me, I like that person. And when he said that to me, it troubled me because I thought, you know, I don't really care that you like that person. We're called to love everybody. And if I only loved the people I liked, I just would not be a very loving person. And we need to grow through all of that and and come to something that's much greater and deeper and, and, and more wonderful there. So both of these things are caught up into comparisons. So Paul is telling them to examine their own work in verse 4, you can notice. Look at your own work and to bear their own load, not comparing to others. And that's not something that we need to be caught up in because I think we all know one day we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to actually give an account and our motives are going to be laid bare on why we did what we did before the Lord Jesus. So this is all getting to the individual, and Paul is speaking to each and every person so that they stay focused upon themselves 
and their calling in the body of Christ. Now, I've found that when it comes to someone who needs to be restored, that part of the fallout for that person is who found out about the sin. Part of the fallout is who saw the sin, who first talked to the person. Sometimes the fallout of a failure is contingent upon those who witness it, who saw the deed, who saw the sin. How will they react when they find out? Uh, I don't know about you, but you don't want to be caught. I don't want to be caught stealing by a reckless man twice my size. If I'm going to be caught stealing, I want to be caught by, you know, a, a little elderly gal who's 90 pounds soaking wet, you know, half blind. She, I want her to catch me in the act, you know. And I think we, all of us here know that um, we know that we sin and those gracious and loving and wonderful people around us, those are the people we want around us to minister to us and to support us in that place. If it were the Pharisees, we know how they would react, don't we? It's recorded for us in the Bible. Um, They caught that woman in the very act, and they drug her away. They were ready to condemn her. They were ready for justice. Oh, how they loved it. And, you know, they were thinking to themselves, finally, someone more evil than us, you know? And, And you don't want to be caught by those kind of people. I look back, and I'm so thankful for the gracious ones that encountered me in my teen years who were gentle and gracious with me and never um, saw me as, uh, never saw my sin, but saw me as a person. And I thought that was a wonderful thing. But our situations can be, you know, less sensational of all this, but conceit comes in many forms. It can be subtle as the glancing away from someone or just avoiding someone or the silence that that person gets, and depriving the person from our warmth, or depriving them from our fellowship. Or it can be just blatantly obvious uh, that we don't have the time and attention for the burdens of others. It says, my time and enjoyment can't be sacrificed for someone who got themselves into a mess. And um, I know that all of us can have self-righteous seasons in our life, and I still look back on something I said. I have three elder sisters, and uh, I still remember one of the things I said to one of my sisters, just so self-righteous. I said, well, you reap what you sow. Oh, you know, I look back to think I ever said that to anyone, you know, especially someone I loved. And we, we see that that has to be confronted even in us. So, This is a problem that we're confronted with every single one of us. Here's the question we can ask ourselves, a few. How do we react to those who act a little more sinful than us? How do we react to those folks? They just act a little more sinful than we do. What is our attitude towards someone more talented than us? What if they're more beautiful than us? What if they're more spiritual than us? We know that they have flaws, they have sins and imperfections. How do we view them? How do we view them? When you encounter someone down and out because of sin, say to yourself, today they fell, tomorrow I could fall the same way. It changes everything. When you see someone else fall, say to yourself, tomorrow I could fall the same way. 
And this brings us to the spirit of restoration. Really, it's the attitude. It's the personality of restoration. I don't care if you have a personality that's type A, type B, type Z. It doesn't matter. It's not about that. You got to have the mind of Christ. And, and you have to be able to convey empathy and love. And this has to come by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. The spirit of restoration, it says in verse 1, is found in gentleness or meekness. That is the word, gentleness. It reads, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. I think of the words of Isaiah, which Jesus actually fulfilled in his earthly ministry, as, as it says in the, book of, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. In his humility, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Jesus was gentle and lowly of heart. We realize that in our words and our discussions and what we say, we need to bring gentleness. Proverbs 25, 15, a gentle tongue breaks a bone. Jesus is obviously our example. In his whole ministry, he came close to those who were down and out, and he approached them with gentleness and meekness. And that is the spirit of restoration. It's to be found with meekness. Next, the spirit of restoration is found in love, but it's specifically a love that bears the load for others. It's a love that bears the load for others. And as you saw in verse 2, it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Say it out loud. One word. What is the law of Christ? Love. Love is the law of Christ. And John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Christians who are walking in sync with their Savior live their lives for others. The hardest work that they do is not for themselves, but for others. You know, it's actually easy to work for yourself. You know that, right? You get paid. <laughs> when you work for others, you don't. And it is an others-centered way of life. Um, they don't need to be good people. We aren't good people. But we're submitted people who see the real purpose in life. We're submitted to the Lord Jesus, and we realize he's our commanding officer He's our example, and that we're serving others as a result. Now, notice that Paul required the Galatians to call on spiritual people to do the work of restoration. Did you see that word spiritual in there? How many of you tried to disqualify yourself when you saw that? No, don't even try it. Don't even try it. You said, you said oh, it says those who are spiritual should restore. I'm out of this one. No, no, no. Who is spiritual? The pastors, the elders. Here's the thing. If you're a person who comforts the sinner in love and gentleness, you are the one we're looking for. You are spiritual. Because we've already had Paul define for us what it is to achieve spirituality. 
The law of Christ is love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. To love your neighbor as yourself. Love is being spiritual. So if you have another picture of what spiritual is, you're going to have to change it. And that's actually what it is. And so do you wonder if you can know who is spiritual? There is no mystery here. There's no mystery. If you fulfill the law of Christ, you you love, you can know who you are. And you are spiritual. Don't analyze it, but do get on with it and restore someone and love someone. And it's not about wearing a badge of honor. It's about being in the trenches and doing the work that God has called you to do, which, by the way, is very fulfilling. How many of you found it to be fulfilling? Yeah, it's very fulfilling, very effective. Now, now that you're all geared up to go do it, um, I want to talk about a few blind spots as it relates to restoration. Um, you know, we have some tendencies in the body of Christ and I found two. Uh, one is that all of us have a tendency either either to be really suspecting or to be very unsuspecting. What I mean by that is really black and white or really laid back. Really a sin sniffer or really close your eyes and put your hands in the sand. Or your, your head in the sand. Sorry, hands in the sand wouldn't do it. <laughs> put the hands in the sand if you want to. But the thing, there's two extremes. We tend to either fixate on people's sin or sweep it under the carpet. And the first one is those of us at times, and I think, by the way, don't categorize yourself as one, categorize yourself as both, because we do both ways. Um, We can be very suspecting. We can be judgmental in our perspective. And so I want to encourage you to not do not confront every single sin that you observe in another person's life. Do not confront every single sin you observe in a person's life. And I don't believe that this is just, you know, my advice. I believe it's from the scriptures. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 3, before you point out the speck in their eye, remove the plank in your own eye. So you may see sawdust in someone's eye, but what you should really get out of your eye is the four by four out of your eye. Okay, that's that. So focus that way. Then it's further reinforced in a lot of places, but I've chosen Romans 15, verse 1. Paul said to the Romans, bear with the scruples of the weak, considering their vulnerabilities and weaknesses, doing nothing to please ourselves. So that means we're, we're kind of overlooking quite a bit in order to love them and be in relationship with them. And we're not to basically correct every single thing that a brother or sister in the Lord does. Now, the other end of the spectrum here is to be unsuspecting. You you compassionate type, you hug people before you know where they've been or before they've showered or anything. You don't even care. You're very compassionate. And for those of you that are so unsuspecting that you get right into their lives, you know, and you reach out to hug that poor fallen soul, but you need to be careful because some of them are on fire. And they, the Bible says that they need to be saved with urgency, and we do need to be careful. We, there are some that are actually right in the trenches of their sin, and they would love to pull you down with them. And the exhortation that we get is from Jude, verse 23. Jude warns us. He says, 
but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So in that place, we're to be careful and realize that we're not to blend into that world, but we are to show them love, to admonish them according to the scriptures, and to encourage them to return to the Lord. Now, regardless if you're suspecting or unsuspecting, uh, this is to everyone. Um, We need to never lose the heart of restoration, and that is the heart of love. Now, Jesus always operated out of love. Paul constantly expressed a motivation of love in all the epistles. As the Corinthians, as an example, were dealing with a man overtaken with sin, um, they had the same problem as everybody else. Paul said to them, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. I mean, Paul was speaking, I I consider Paul to be an extremely tough guy, but he was also very parental. And and just like a mom or a dad, he's giving them really loving advice, saying to them, you ought to rather forgive them, comfort them, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. I can remember again in my early days of Christian service, I was in an environment that was quite legalistic, and man, it's so easy to lay it on thick with people. I mean, it just to, to make, the, I can't believe you would do something so disgusting. You know, and we can talk that way to people and our kids and everything. And we just look at that and we go, it is so not like the Lord. And so Paul had to actually remind the Corinthians to, not to forget a few things. He was saying to them, don't forget to forgive. It's a novel idea. Don't forget to comfort. Don't forget to love. And, and all of that is very, very important. And the fact that it's in the Bible for us to realize that Christians still need to hear it is just a reminder to us there's no time in our life where we're not going to have to really be exhorted in these areas of forgiving, comforting, and loving, especially the sinners who are really failing. And then in that same passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, by the way, is where it's at. Just a little verse down, Paul says to him, Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Reaffirm your love to him. Sure, he knows you love him. No, the Apostle Paul is telling you to reaffirm your love for them. And that is something that we're called to do and express that. If you're someone who never says, I love you, you need to work on that. You're going to have to find a way to actually express that love so you can reaffirm that brother or sister in the Lord. Remember that love covers a multitude of sins. And remember Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Now, there is a great cost to overlooking our role in restoration. When we're helping someone out or we're building something up, not aiding in the restoration process is like ignoring a cut and allowing it to be infected. And it's so ridiculous. I don't know if you've known anybody who's actually had just the smallest little abrasion on their body, but they work so hard and tough and and they just don't wash and they just cover it with duct tape, you know, these guys. And then what happens? I I go and visit them in the hospital. 
And, and it's like these big, giant, burly men have staph infections. How tough are you now? Huh? Not so tough, huh? Yeah. And you got IVs all over the place and, and uh, in the hospital for weeks and weeks. Why? Because you just didn't think that you should wash the cut and put a Band-Aid on it? Smooth, smooth, buddy. You know? But we act the same way when it comes to um, those of us around us who they need to be cared for. They need to be restored. And uh, it may seem like a small matter to you. You might have to go out of your way to, to minister to them and to love them and to help them. But each one of us is called to do this. And, you know, some stupid little sin or failure can just completely take a person out from Christian fellowship. And how unnecessary that is. And we don't want to stand by unaffected by the sins and the hardships of others. Each one of us is called to bear our own load or responsibility. Verse 5. Each one of us is called to bear our own load. This has more than one meaning to it because Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is saying something pretty amazing. Hey, listen, don't try to bear somebody else's load and go condemning them. Bear your own load, he's saying. Realize you're going to stand before the Lord one day and you're actually going to have to answer for how you treated others in the body of Christ and even those outside of the body of Christ because that's your ministry. And Paul spoke of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he said, for this we will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. That how you treated those brothers and sisters in the Lord you will answer for before the Lord. Not for your salvation, but for rewards in the kingdom of God that we will actually be rewarded for how we submitted to the Lord Jesus in our service, in our ministry, and loving people at their level. As Jesus' disciples, he wants us to take care of his children. You know, I don't know about you, but if you wanted to punish me, put me as a daycare worker. I think I would go insane. But you know, I served as a pastor for about eight and a half years, and you know, after a while, you realize that I, I'm just kind of like a daycare worker. You know, I'm, I'm helping people. I'm, I'm making sure they get their snacks. And I'm, I'm doing these things. I'm correcting and encouraging. And, and, and we're having a good time together. And, and on and on and on. But it's about these relationships and caring for one another. And Jesus wants us to take care of his children. They're his children and we're to care for one another. And then, of course, we have to walk in the humility of knowing we're just one of his kids as well. And that makes us more in touch with his spirit. So here's the question for as we're closing. Where are we today? Where are we right now? All of us who are spiritual uh, need to do the job of restoration. We need to be bearing one another's burdens. And that's fulfilling the law of Christ. And you know what you need to do. Go do it. Good grief. Don't wait. These people need help. If you haven't called anybody and prayed for them in the past week, get to it. If you haven't knelt down with them or sat next to them and prayed for them, get to it. Because it would be like not feeding a child for a week. Don't skip it. It's important to minister 
to one another. And then some of us here today need to be restored. There's always plenty of people who need to be restored. And, it's, and you can never tell by how nice their outfits are, by the way. They look good. You know? People need to be restored all the time. They need to be encouraged. They need to be built up. And so I'm encouraging you, those of you that need to be restored, stop hiding out. Don't hide. First come to the Lord Jesus. Come to God. Hebrews 4.16. Why would you run from a gracious God? You don't have to run from him. It says, Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't ever run from a gracious God. He loves you. He wants you to run to him and not from him. Secondly, you need to come to a loving brother or sister. Come to a loving brother or sister because you don't, you didn't call them spiritual, but you know they're loving. That means they're spiritual. And go to them and do what it says in James chapter 5. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we realize that many times we have hid from you, not remembering your gracious way, your loving way, that you're ready to heal and wash us and clean us and restore what only you can restore. We do want to say to you, we realize that against you, you only have we sinned and we Come to you first and foremost, Lord, asking for you to meet us at our point of need, realizing, Lord, you're the one who washes us and, and cleanses us. You're our Father, and we love you today. And Lord, for those of us who know that we're called to minister to our brothers and sisters, will you empower us by your Holy Spirit, that we'd have a heart like yours, that we'd have a loving manner like yours, that we would decrease and you would increase in our lives by your Spirit. Freshly fill us with your Spirit for this wonderful work. And we say this in Jesus' name. Amen.